Mustang is a special podcast production of Boise State Public Radio and the Mountain West News Bureau. Support for this series comes from Barbarian Brewing, who believes all it takes is a few untamed minds, a little elbow grease, and a few pints of beer to make true innovation happen. I remember the first time Boo bucked me off. We were riding along through the sagebrush, following a cowboy buddy of mine, Dave, on his dead-broke quarter horse. And I wouldn't let Boo put his head down to munch the spring grass, so he threw a temper tantrum. I stayed on for maybe four or five good bucks, but then he dumped me. I wasn't hurt, mostly just mad at the little pig. Dave watched it all happen. He was a champion bronc and bull rider in Alaska in his day, so he's ridden his fair share of bucks. And of course, we talked about it at the bar that night. <laughs> the bronc. I mean, the bronc. Oh, you're right, you're right. Unbelievable. So, you know, every, everything was done right until it went wrong. Which is exactly how it happens. You know, nobody's faulting you. We're saying what you did was some cowboy shit. He was being a turd, but you know he was—he was actually for for a horse of a, a Mustang you got a year ago. I couldn't believe you. I couldn't even believe you were on his back. So that little son of a gun, doing fantastic. But when you got to lollygag and you were looking around, I don't know if you were putting lipstick on or doing your fucking nails or what it was. And he, and he took his and he took his head and he said, "Hey, I'm going down the hill." Yeah. And I'm like, all right, all we can do is watch because you damn sure don't want to chase them. You know, it just makes things worse. It's like bull riding. Spank that fucker. <laughs> but after about after about four or five seconds, I, and I seen you turn your head and look at the ground, I'm like, oh, that's where she's going. Because that's what happens. If you, if you start looking for a spot, you're going to find it. <laughs> But you hit the ground and you bounce like one time, you're up going like, I'm fine, I'm fine. And boom, and then you're gathered it up, gathered him up, and you're like, here we go again. There are so many stories to share about this little Mustang. He's teaching me so much even if sometimes that involves bucking me off in the sagebrush. And hey, if you're enjoying Boo's journey, heads up that I've written a children's book to accompany this podcast. It's called The Little Black Mustang. It's all about a wild horse who is adopted by a little girl and what they learn together. The book is beautifully illustrated by Katie Michael, who also did the artwork for the podcast series. You can get your very own copy at thelittleblackmustang.com. Okay, now for some more cowboy shit. We're heading to Nevada ranching country. There are more wild horses in Nevada than in any other state. And many ranchers resent that the horses compete with their cows for the scarce grass in this arid sagebrush country. Nevada is such a dry state that it takes a lot more acres to feed a cow than it does in, say, the lush prairies of Nebraska or Kansas. In places like that, you can keep bigger herds on smaller pastures because there's so much grass for them. In Nevada, your cows have to be spread out over hundreds and thousands of acres to get the food that they need. And if there are thousands of wild horses out there too, well, you can see where the tension might arise. That's what brought me to the northwestern part of the state near Winnemucca, 
I wanted to learn what it's like to ranch in wild horse country. And it wasn't too hard to find folks with strong feelings about it. I stopped along the highway, I-80, to uh, get some ice for my cooler so I could have a cold Coors when I uh, got to camp tonight. And met a couple cool chicks um, at a tiny store on the side of the road in a town called Imlay, Nevada. Turns out one of them liked my truck, asked if I was a rancher, told her I wasn't. She is, though. So I'm doing this whole series about uh, Mustangs. And it sounds like you have some direct experience with the critters around here. They destroy everything. Really? Everything. That's Brady Vincent. She ranches with her husband and his family around here. They mainly raise Herefords and Black Angus cows. And when their cows are out on the range, Brady says they have to compete with a lot of wild horses for grass. I'm like, I'll tell anybody, like, these horses, there's too fucking many. Look, they don't eat the rabbit brush, the mustard weed, everything that the cows aren't eating, they're not eating. And they get to it before the cows because BLM and everything, you have certain dates. The BLM, or Bureau of Land Management, regulates cattle grazing on public lands. Cows are only allowed to be out for specific periods of time. But wild horses roam wherever they want and eat whatever they find year-round. There's nothing for the cows by the time spring turnout comes because the horses have already had it. Another complaint I heard from Brady and other ranchers, infrastructure damage. Ranchers spend thousands upon thousands of dollars on fencing and water troughs and wells. The horses come in, they'll tear fences down, trying to get into the troughs to get water because maybe there's not water around for 20 miles. They'll tear up your tanks. They'll tear up where the water, like the pipe, is coming out of the well. It's months and months of work and money trying to fix everything that these mismanaged animals are destroying because nobody, everybody's like, oh, you know, they're pretty. Do you feel um, like anybody's listening to ranchers when they say what you're saying about what they're seeing on the ground and like raise concerns about it? Absolutely not. There's so many people moving to Nevada from California, and they're just all animal lovers. Oh, look at that horse. Yeah, well, you see every rib. You see his backbone. You see everything. Come look at him again in a couple months, and he's going to be dead. So there it is. This is about more than just wild horses. They're a lightning rod, a symbol of the urban-rural divide in this country. I live in ranching country in Washington state, and I help out on a couple of local ranches. Mostly I do a lot of listening from horseback, and I hear some themes that repeat. Ranchers are worried about the rise of fake meat and vegetarianism, of being judged by people who don't understand their way of life and would be just fine if it faded into the sunset. They've been hit hard by rising fuel prices and feed costs in recent years. Drought, consolidation in the beef industry, and competition from producers in other countries with less stringent regulations. Wild horses, with their federal protection under the Wild Horse and Burrow Act, are one more thing ranchers can't control that affects their ability to make a living, especially in places like Nevada, where it's super dry and there are a lot of horses using the land ranchers rely on for their livestock. But here's the twist and the kind of thing that makes me love the Mustang story so much. The ranchers I've spoken with don't want wild horses gone. In fact, for many of them, 
their histories are entwined in a surprisingly beautiful way. I didn't understand that until I spent hours in Will DeLong's F-350 pickup, bumping along on the vast, open stretches of public land where he grazes his cows outside of Winnemucca. Photos don't do justice to the high, the skyline horizon out here. No, it doesn't. It's... Do you just get cla- claustrophobic when you go to the city? <laughs> yeah, I get tired of people pretty fast. You know, just... <laughs> Before I started recording, Will told me he'd rather go to the dentist than be interviewed. I hate the dentist too, so that was kind of a chilly way to start the conversation. But I get it. To get to Will's ranch, you have to drive 70 miles on dirt roads from the nearest town. His wife and kids live in Winnemucca during the week so they can get to school. So he spends a lot of time alone with his cows. I can see why doing interviews with out-of-town journalists might not be a skill he's chosen to cultivate in his life but he felt moved to talk to me about wild horses because, like Brady, they've affected his livelihood, driving up infrastructure costs and competing with his cows for grass. You know, I take, take pride in my cattle being in good shape, and I don't want them starving somewhere because it won't make me any money and it won't do the cattle any good. It's, it's just... In recent years, Will has chosen not to turn his cows out on some of the public land he leases from the BLM. He says there wasn't enough food for them, with hundreds of wild horses grazing it too. That meant buying hay and feeding his cows at home. And hay prices have been really high. Wild horse herds in Nevada are on average four times the size the BLM says they should be. And that bugs many ranchers, including Will. But he doesn't want them gone. He just wants them managed. When they're at the levels where they're, where they're supposed to be at or close to it, they're, they're, they're not a challenge. They're not? No. Okay. No, I, I have no... I don't have any problem. If they're managed and the right numbers, we're used to them. Right? I mean, I kind of like seeing them, actually. Cool. Will's family has been used to seeing wild horses for more than 150 years. The DeLongs homesteaded this country, right around the time Nevada was granted statehood. Back then, there weren't many fences. The boundary between what one rancher owned and the open range was pretty fluid. That's why people started branding cattle, so you could tell who owned them when they were out wandering. Horses were managed in a very similar way back then. Homesteaders would turn their horses out, just set them loose during the winter so they didn't have to feed them, and then they'd catch the ones they wanted when they needed them. Over the years, some horses were never caught, and they're part of the genetic history of the wild horses that live here today. Will's great-great-grandfather actually died herding horses. He was bringing a group of them across the Green River in Wyoming to sell. It was springtime, and the river was high. He drowned, leaving his wife and two young sons to fend for themselves on the Nevada frontier in the 1870s. To make ends meet, Will's great-great-grandmother supplied horses to the U.S. Cavalry as part of what was called the Cavalry Remount Program. Um, that was when the government would um, supply their answer with the used to have more of a thoroughbred stallion, and he would turn it out with his mares so that the cavalry would have a supply of horses when they needed it. The government paid Will's great-great-grandmother to keep horses at the ready for the next military campaign. And she wasn't alone, of course. Ranchers across the West made money through this program. 
As we're driving along, Will points out another piece of his family's history with wild horses. I can see a draw in the distance, a sort of canyon in the dry sagebrush lined with juniper trees. On this side of that tall peak, there's, on the Ridgelands, there's there's about two different horse traps on there. Horse traps? Yeah. You'll be going through the juniper trees and stuff, and you'll be in this trap before you even realize it. In the early 1900s, Will's great-grandfather caught wild horses for money. He would chase them into those hidden traps on horseback and close the gate behind them. Then he'd use their mane and tail hair to braid ropes and tie two horses together. And then would they basically drag them? Like no, they 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 drive them. So the, the, the two horses, two, two best hands together, they could, can't go, can't run because they can't decide on which way to go. Wow. And then they they drive them to this down to the valley. And then where do they go from there? And then they take the Winnemucca, somewhere like that, and so on. Some of the horses Will's great-grandfather caught may have been sent to Europe during World War I. Mustangs were shipped over to be war horses, cart horses, or to end up as food for soldiers on the front lines. And back home, long before the Bureau of Land Management took over, Will's family was managing the horses that lived on the range surrounding their ranch. They would gather them. Yeah. And they would keep the best horses. Yeah. They would turn the best horses back out, the, the inferior ones, or, or old ones, crippled, whatever. Those are the ones that they would ship. And so they had, they managed the horses so that they were better horses all the time. They wanted to have the best horses they could on the range. And that sense of stewardship continued into Will's grandfather and father's generations. The DeLongs kept the numbers in check, culling wild horse herds now and then, catching some horses to train and ride, but also releasing their own good mares and stallions intentionally to influence the bloodlines of the wild stock. It was a sort of permeable barrier between domestic and wild horses, a genetic exchange back and forth over the generations. Will's father had an incredible Mustang mare, a beautiful buckskin named Gypsy, that he still talks about. A lot of the horses on the ranch today are her descendants. And then there was Cadillac Jack, a beloved Mustang gelding, or Pinto Pete, the Mustang Will rode as a kid. But then things changed. The Wild Horse and Burrow Act passed in 1971 and made it illegal for the public to catch or kill wild horses. At the time, word spread among ranchers that you should kill as many horses as you could to get the numbers down before it was too late. Will's family didn't kill any horses because they liked having them around. They were proud of them. And, you know, maybe in hindsight we should have. Wow. And so that act, your whole life, has been since the Wild Horse and Burrow Act. Yeah. And the numbers have... Pretty steadily increased. Which was what it was meant to do, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for some people, yeah. It's, yeah, it was, it's, for people who wanted more horses, it worked out well for them. What do you think it would be like if we didn't have that act? For you? I don't know. I mean, never thought about it, but. I'd imagine we'd have a lot fewer horses, and they would be, the ones that we, we would have would be a, a lot higher quality horse. Will says that now, when his dad talks about the wild horses around here, it's with a tone of disappointment. 
the BLM doesn't manage the herds as aggressively or proactively as his family has over the generations. And his dad thinks the quality of the horses has suffered. He still feels that, that pride ownership on them, that, that it should be a prettier, better bunch of horses. That's a big learning for me, moving to ranching country and really starting to understand that ranchers are really, in many ways, um, like gardeners on steroids, that you manage these vast portions of land, but right. you think about them in the same way that a gardener thinks about their tiny plot behind their house, you know? No, that's, that's a good way to put it. I mean, like this country, it's, you know, public land, but we've been here forever. I feel like this is mine. You're not so much as nobody else should be out here, but that I should take care of it. And the same goes for the Mustangs that live here, it sounds like. The way you were just talking about, like yeah. wanting them to be healthy or a good stock. Yeah. Despite how Will and many ranchers feel about it, the Wild Horse and Burrow Act saved the Mustang. Back then, their numbers were plummeting, and there were a lot of bad actors making a lot of money trapping and selling horses for slaughter. This was an animal worth saving, even if it took an act of Congress. These were the horses that shaped the West, after all. But they also shaped Will DeLong's family. They made it possible for them to ranch in this vast, harsh country. They were the workhorses and cow horses. They provided transport on the sporadic, long trips into town for provisions. They were adapted to this place. And it was on their backs that the DeLongs and so many others were able to carve out a life for themselves out here over the generations. In a way, when the government took over the management of wild horses in the West, a relationship was broken, or at least changed forever. Next episode, training Mustangs. Making the transition from life in the wild to life in the noisy, stressful world of humans can be really hard for so many horses. We're going to meet a woman who knows how that feels, perhaps better than most. I mean, I was, I was shaking and I was just, I can't walk, I can't, I'm just going to stand here. That was, that was, that was crazy. It's, it's eerie. So, you know, I mean, shut down in horses is the same as dissociated in people. You just leave your body, you leave the situation, for better or for worse. Find out how one trainer is using her personal journey with trauma and autism to help wild horses find solid ground in the world of humans. This episode was recorded in the Great Basin on the occupied territories of indigenous people. The state of Nevada consists of 27 federally recognized tribes from four nations, the Numu, or Northern Paiute, the Western Shoshone, the Washishu, or Washoe, and the Nuwu, or Southern Paiute. Mustang is edited and sound designed by Liza Yeager. Art for the series is by Katie Michael. Did you know you are physically adapting to all your swiping, scrolling, and tapping? 
we're changing our bodies and what they're able to do through our habits. NPR's Body Electric, a special interactive series investigating how to fix the relationship between our tech and our health. Listen in the TED Radio Hour feed wherever you get your podcasts.